This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, July 15th, 2023, episode 101, concerning Danish devastations, a devilish pope, a deceitful duke, and English decline. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. For this episode 101, we're going back to basics, dipping into a chronicle for an eclectic run of interesting incidents. Today's source is the Chronicle of Melrose, which was our source for most of our Simon de Montfort material from way back in episodes 13, 14, and 15, gave us one of our three accounts of the deaths of Edgar and Edward in episode 25, presented a range of astronomical marvels in episode 35, and supplied an unflattering portrait of King John in episode 36. But we haven't been back to it since 2017, so this is long overdue. Looking back at those old episodes, I realized that I never really properly introduced the manuscript history of the Chronicle of Melrose, so let's take care of that now, helped by the account of the manuscript given by Dovit Brune and Julian Harrison in the introduction to their 2007 facsimile edition of the Chronicle. This chronicle is preserved in a single manuscript that was at some point, probably in the 16th century, split into two parts, one part containing a copy of the Chronicle of Hugh of St. Victor with a few pages of the start of the text of the Melrose Chronicle, and then another chunk with the remainder of the Melrose Chronicle. These two chunks of manuscript were then bound into two different codices alongside other texts. Both of those codices are now in the British Library, who got them way back in 1753 when they were still just the British Museum as part of the collection of Robert Cotton with the designations Julius B-8 and Faustina B-9. A side note bit of trivia, the Roman Empress Faustina is one of only two women represented in the 14 busts by which the bookcases of the Cottonian Library were originally labeled. The other is... Feel free to take a guess. It's Cleopatra. So, moving back one step in the chain of custody, before Robert Cotton acquired it, the manuscript was in the possession of the 16th century antiquarian John Leland, who, partly as an agent of Henry VIII and partly for his own interests, toured around the monasteries of England before the king dissolved them, taking inventory of their libraries, and after the dissolution, collecting for himself many of those same books. That is probably how he got his hands on this manuscript, which is assumed to come from Melrose Abbey in the Scottish borders, since it contains information of local interest to the abbey, such as a list of its abbots and of Melrose monks who were made bishops. It's a little hard to see why the scribes of any other abbey would have included those items. But Leland almost certainly didn't get it from Melrose. Manuscript evidence points to the Codex having been transferred from Scotland to Deeping St. James Priory in Lincolnshire, sometime before the 14th century. But then it isn't listed in a mid-14th century inventory of Deeping Priory, so it seems to have gone a-wandering once more, perhaps to Thorny Abbey in Cambridgeshire, the mother house for Deeping, or possibly to nearby Crowland Abbey, as featured in one of my favorite of our early episodes, number five, The Burning of Crowland Abbey. John Leland visited both of those houses in December of 1539, and that's quite likely where he picked up the manuscript. Further proof that he had it is the number of annotations identified as being in his handwriting throughout the margins of the manuscript. He's also probably the one who split the manuscript into its two parts. 
but not arbitrarily. The Melrose Chronicle is missing a chunk. The first section runs from the years 1 to 249, and then the surviving leaf picks up in the year 731 and continues to 1171, with later continuations all the way up to 1270. So, an unknown number of leaves covering the years 250 to 730 have been lost. We can dismiss any charges against John Leland for having misplaced the leaves, since there's a marginal note in the manuscript remarking on the missing material, and that note dates from around 1208, three centuries before Leland ever got hold of the manuscript. So, the text has had this gap in it for a long time. But faced with this lacuna, Leland incorrectly identified the larger and later portion of the text as an epitome or abridgment of the Chronicle of Roger of Howden, not a continuation of the Chronicle of Melrose. So the pages with the Chronicle of Hugh of St. Victor and the first six leaves of the Melrose Chronicle went into one codex, which was to become Julius B-8, and the rest went into what would become Faustina B-9. And indeed, it was a long time before scholars recognized that the text at the end of the Julius manuscript was indeed the opening of the Melrose Chronicle. Uh, That was not known, for example, to the translator of our edition for today, Joseph Stevenson, who starts his text at the year 731. In terms of its physical condition, the Chronicle is written on what Julian Harrison describes as parchment, quote, of no more than average quality, end quote, and featuring a number of holes within the writing space eight of which were quite neatly patched by the scribes, so we can see care being taken to make the most of modest resources. Both codices survived unscathed the infamous Ashburnham House fire that damaged much of the Cottonian Library, but at some point earlier, the bottom outside corners of the first 53 leaves were visibly damaged, in Harrison's words, quote, perhaps by damp, fire, or rodent infestation, end quote. Uh, leaving those corners sort of clipped off. The span of leaves damaged would have included the missing section, so maybe it went missing because of damage? Uh, I like to picture a big rat dragging a choir away to make a nest from. Uh, Or maybe it was mislaid while the damaged manuscript was being disassembled for repair sometime before 1208, but there's really no way to know. Speaking of damage and ruination, Our selection from the Melrose Chronicle today covers quite a bit of destruction and death in late Anglo-Saxon England. We're going to pick up at the year 997, when England was in the midst of a decade of incursions by Norse and Danish Viking bands. Well, a couple of centuries of incursions, really, uh, but this is specifically a campaign following the English defeat at the Battle of Malden. After that battle, the English king Athelred II, aka Athelred the Unready, paid the first Danegeld tribute or protection money to the Vikings so that they would leave his kingdom in peace. Rather than securing a lasting peace, though, the payment of the Danegeld seems to have simply demonstrated to the Vikings that they had another effective method for extracting wealth from England besides just raw plundering. So you see more Viking bands arriving throughout the 990s demanding payment to leave. Another interesting detail we can observe in these accounts of Viking movements is how effectively they used rivers to reach inland settlements. One of the design features of Viking longships was that they had a very shallow draft. Uh, They could navigate in as little as one meter of water and could safely pull right up onto beaches, which in medieval terms made them practically amphibious vehicles. Uh, That's not really an exaggeration. Some of the smaller longships could be picked up and carried by their crew overland 
to get from one waterway to another. And with that, let's get into the text and see these Vikings in action. First, a couple of textual notes, though. The Chronicle features a chronological error in which the events of the years 1013 and 1014 are transposed. Uh, A curiously obvious error, since King Swain dies in the first entry and is ravaging England again in the next. If you'll indulge me my own little bit of paleographic detective work, I have a theory about this. And you can follow along with the online digital facsimile of the manuscript if you like. Just search the Digital Manuscript Collection at the British Library website for Cotton Manuscript Faustina B9, that's Roman numeral 9, I-X. Click the page thumbnail when it comes up, and when you're in the Manuscript Viewer, go to the drop-down menu in the corner of the navigation bar and select F11V, meaning Folio 11 Verso, or the backside of the 11th leaf. Now, we're going to look at the first new full item on there. To my eyes, it looks like the Roman numerals for the year 1013, M.XIII, has a conspicuous gap between the punctus, uh, the period at the end of that date, and the last I in the year, as if a fourth I had been scratched off the page. As though maybe they wrote out the entry for 1014 and then realized that they'd skipped a year. Then the next entry begins with the year 1014 in a noticeably darker ink than the rest of the text, suggesting that something has been overwritten at a later time. Now, some of you might be objecting that you don't write Roman numeral 14 with four I's. Hey, who are you to tell a medieval scribe how to write Roman numerals? And in point of fact, both classical and medieval scribes were not always consistent with the rules for Roman numeral formation, and it's not unusual to see 14 as X-I-I-I-I. Uh, as indeed it is written in the existing entry for 1014 on that page of the Melrose Chronicle. Anyway, there aren't any arrows indicating flip these two paragraphs or anything like that, nor any marginal note on the error. Perhaps the scribe going over the text much later simply noticed the flipped years and not really paying attention to the content, assumed that was the extent of the error and just fixed the years. Or maybe they realized the bigger error, but took the path of least resistance in making the text look at least superficially correct. Uh, I don't have access to Brune and Harrison's full edition to see what they have to say about this particular passage, um, but that's my take on it. More experienced paleographers out there, I'd love to hear your opinions. And just to cap this off, uh, I will read the text as it is in the manuscript, with Swain seemingly rising from the dead to attack the English once more. Uh, The second textual note is not about an error, but an interesting variation. Athelred II is called in the manuscript's Latin Eilred, as well as Eildred or Eldred, and as such, our translator Joseph Stevenson uses the name Eilred in the translation. Uh, But these all signify Athelred. There are a few other points of interest in this text, but we'll come to those after we hear it. So, Here it is, the Chronicle of Melrose's entries for the years 997 to 1018, as translated by Stevenson as part of his series, The Church Historians of England, Volume 4, Part 1, published in 1856. An 
Anno Domini 997. The Danish army, which had remained in England, destroyed the greater portion of several provinces, slaughtered many of the inhabitants, and burnt the monastery of Tavistock, and then returned to the ships laden with immense booty. They passed the winter in the same place. Anno Domini 998. The army of the pagans, which we have already mentioned, having been driven to the mouth of the river Froom, devastated by far the larger part of Dorsetshire, and paid frequent visits to the Isle of Wight. An army was frequently assembled to oppose such a calamity, but it miserably and unfortunately happened that the enemy were the victors. Anno Domini 999. The army of the pagans entered the mouth of the Thames, and passing up the River Medway, proceeded to Rochester, and laid siege to it for a few days, and there they carried on a sharp war with the men of Kent, but the enemies were victorious. Hereupon they ravaged nearly the whole of the western portion of Kent. Anno Domini 1000 The Danish fleet went to Normandy. Eilred, the king of the English, depopulated almost the entire land of the Cumbrians. Hugh, the king of the Franks, the son of Hugh Capet, died and was succeeded by his son Robert. Anno Domini 1001 The army of the pagans, having returned from Normandy to England, entered the mouth of the River X and unsuccessfully attempted to take the city of Exeter, whereupon, being exceedingly incensed, they wandered through Devonshire according to their usual custom, burning down towns, ravaging the country, and murdering the inhabitants. Upon this, the men of Devonshire and Somersetshire, having united their forces, engaged them in battle. But the English giving way and taking to flight, the enemy were victorious. Anno Domini 1002 Eilred, the king of the English, having taken counsel with his people, determined upon paying 24,000 pounds in order that he might have peace. In the same year, King Eilred married Emma, who in English is called Alfgiva, the daughter of Richard, the first Duke of the Normans. Adolf, Archbishop of York, raised from the tomb the bones of his predecessor, St. Oswald, and placed them honorably in a shrine, and not long afterwards he died and was succeeded by Abbot Wulstan. Anno Domini 1003 Swain, the king of the Danes, broke into Exeter and plundered it and destroyed its wall, and then they attacked the province of Wiltshire, Upon this, the inhabitants of Wiltshire and Hampshire assembled together like men of courage, and just as they were about to engage with the enemy, Duke Alfric began to make himself sick, and in the excess of his sluggish cowardice, he grew frightened, and so they turned away from the foe without fighting. Perceiving this, Swain and his army destroyed Wilton and Salisbury by fire, and then returned to his ships. Anno Domini 1004 Swain, the king of the Danes, went by sea to Norwich, which he pillaged and burnt. Thereupon Ulfkettle, the bold earl of the East Anglians, who had come up unexpectedly, finding that there was no room for his troops to engage those of the enemy, made peace with them, after deliberating the matter with his own people. But it was shortly after violated by the king of the Danes, who burnt Thetford. Ulfkettle, when he understood this, collected his army and boldly attacked the enemy. Many fell on both sides, and the Danes escaped with difficulty, and, as they themselves admitted, they had never experienced a sharper attack while in England. Pope John died and was succeeded by Gregory. 
Anno Domini 1005. A severe famine overran England, upon which Swain, the Danish king, returned to Denmark, but his absence was to be of no long duration. Pope Gregory died and was succeeded by John, who, dying in the same year, had for his successor Sylvester, named also Gerbert. It is reported that this Gerbert did homage to the devil, in order that by this means he might attain unto the honors of this world, whereupon it was said, Gerbert advances from R to R and becomes a successful Pope R. The meaning of this is that he was promoted from the Archbishopric of Reims to that of the city of Ravenna, which at that time stood very high among the seas, and then at last he attained the supreme dignity of the Roman chair. It is further reported that at a later time the stings of his conscience and some bodily affliction so goaded him that he cut off his hands and feet and threw them as an offering to the devil, and so the mutilated trunk which remained died, and he was canonized as a saint. Anno Domini 1006 Alfric, Archbishop of Canterbury, died, and was succeeded by Alfhea, Bishop of Winchester, in whose stead Kenulf was appointed bishop. The Danish fleet came to England and ravaged all by fire and sword. For after having devastated Kent and Sussex, the province of Hampshire and Berkshire, they returned to their ships with their booty. Anno Domini 1007. Pope Sylvester died and was succeeded by John. Compelled by necessity, King Eilred undertook to pay the Danes an annual tribute of 36,000 pounds in order that the peace might be henceforth observed. In this year also, the king appointed as Duke of the Mercians Edric, surnamed Strayona, who, although he was the king's own son-in-law, was a traitor and afterwards betrayed his country. Anno Domini 1008. Pope John died and was succeeded by another John. King Eilred strictly commanded that ships should be built everywhere through England that he might defend his own kingdom from the inroads of foreigners. Anno Domini 1009. Pope John died and was succeeded by Pope Sergius. Earl Turkel, with his fleet and Hemming and Eilaf, with a countless army of Danes, landed at the island of Thanet, and as they were about to storm the city of Canterbury, the inhabitants surrendered, as did those of the eastern parts of Kent, and gave them 3,000 pounds to have a final peace. Afterwards, King Aurid would have had a complete triumph over them had not the perfidious Duke Edric prevented it. Anno Domini 1010 the same Danish army devastated nearly the whole of the southern part of England as far as Lincolnshire, burning all as they advanced. And, alas that we must record it, they gained a victory over the East Angles in battle. Anno Domini 1011 Pope Sergius died and was succeeded by Benedict. The Danes miserably destroyed the city of Canterbury with fire and sword and took prisoner St. Alphea, the Archbishop, and Godwin, Bishop of Rochester, and the abbess Leofruna, after having plundered the Cathedral of Christchurch. They also captured Elfred, the king's provost, and monks, and clerks, and a countless multitude of both sexes of the common people. St. Alphea was kept in chains and exposed to various insults, and after having been severely wounded, he was carried off to the fleet, thrust into prison, and there kept in misery for seven months. Monks, men, women, and children were decimated. That is, nine were put to death, the tenth was saved. Those who escaped were, in all, 
four monks, and 800 men. In the meantime, the anger of God raged upon this murderous people, for 2,000 of them died from a certain painful disorder of the bowels, but neither yet did they make satisfaction to God and his high priest. Anno Domini 1012. Edric Strayona, that treacherous duke, and all the chief men of England assembled at London and paid to the Danes the tribute of 48,000 pounds, which had been promised. While this was going on, the Holy Saturday before Easter Sunday, the Danes made this proposition to St. Alphea, that if he wished to save his life and recover his liberty, he must pay 3,000 pounds. This he refused to do, and they reserved his murder for the following Saturday. On its arrival, they, in the fury of their spirit, drunken with excess of wine, dragged him out of his prison to their place of assemblage. They struck him with the back of their axes. They nearly bury him under the stones, bones, and heads of oxen with which they assail him. At length, one of them, named Truro, whom he had confirmed the day before, moved with a kind of cruel pity, dashed his hatchet into the archbishop's head, who forthwith fell asleep in the Lord. On the following day, his body was conveyed to London and was honorably buried in the church of St. Paul by Elnoth, Bishop of London, and Alfum of London, and by the citizens. Anno Domini 1013. St. Edmund, in his armor, slew in a discussion at Gainsborough that tyrant and blasphemer Swain, who saw his assailant and cried out as he saw him. Upon his death, the Danish fleet appointed as king his son Canute, but the elders of England recalled from Normandy Eilred as their king. Anno Domini 1014. Leving received the Archbishopric of Canterbury. Swain, king of the Danes, arrived in England with a powerful fleet, and like a possessed madman, he ravaged nearly the whole of England and reduced it under his own power and received its hostages. Perceiving this, King Eilred, with his wife and children, went to Normandy to Duke Richard. Anno Domini 1015. King Eilred, beginning to sicken, his son Edmund Ironside had the charge of the kingdom, but many gave hostages to Canute, who was occupied in a general plundering, and, among others, the traitor Edric made submission. Anno Domini 1016. King Eilred, the bishops, abbots, and the more noble of the English people chose Canute as their king, but the citizens of London and a portion of the nobility elevated Edmund Ironside to that dignity. He engaged in battle with Canute on six occasions, and at almost each time he was the conqueror, and so peace being made between him and Canute, they divided England between themselves. But some traitor or other, who had hidden himself beneath the privy house to which Edmund had retired for the necessary purposes of nature, stabbed him near the private parts, which were at that time bared, and he died. Anno Domini 1017. King Canute, the son of Swain, received the rule of the whole of England. And after Edwin the Etheling, the brother of King Edmund, had been put to death, he sent Edmund and Edward, the sons of the same king, to the king of the Suave, that they should be murdered. But he, being unwilling to kill these innocent youths, sent them to Solomon, the king of Hungary, that they might be brought up by him. In the course of time, Edmund died there, but Edward took to wife Agatha, the daughter of the German Emperor Henry, by whom he became the father of Margaret, who was afterwards the Queen of the Scots, Christina the Nun, 
and Edgar the Etheling. King Canute married Emma, who had formerly been queen, by whom he had Harthacanute, who afterwards became King of the Danes and Angles, and a daughter, Gunhilda, who afterwards married Henry, the Emperor of the Romans. Anno Domini 1018 At Christmas, King Canute caused the traitorous Duke Edric Strayona to be put to death in the palace, being apprehensive that at some time or other he would be entrapped by him, as his former masters, Egelred and Edmund, had frequently been. He directed, moreover, that his dead body should be exposed upon the city wall, and then cast down without burial. Three other innocent persons, the noble sons of dukes, were put to death. Alden, Bishop of Durham, died. A great battle was fought at Carham between the English and the Scots. The Angles and the Danes came to an agreement at Oxford that the law of King Edgar should be observed. So, there you have the first decades of the 11th century as described by the Chronicle of Melrose. Let's start with one of the great villains of Anglo-Saxon history, Edric Streona, called the Traitorous Duke by our chronicler. More accurately, he was Alderman Edric, Alderman being one of the highest ranks in the Anglo-Saxon hierarchy, above Thane but below Atheling, or Prince, During Canute's reign, the Anglo-Saxon alderman was replaced by the more Scandinavian Earl, cognate with Norse Jarl. Fittingly, for someone whose loyalties were so fluid, we find Edric called both alderman and Earl in different sources. Uh, His by-name, Streona, means grasping, acquisitive, and appears for the first time in a text composed about a century after his death. Our chronicler calls it his surname, or in the original Latin, his cognomen, But it really is a nickname, and it likely wasn't a name he bore in his lifetime, but was coined later by a monastic writer who judged Edric's taking of church property rather negatively, and it was picked up and perpetuated by later writers, including the writer of this section of the Melrose Chronicle. Edric does not have any friends that I've been able to find among the chroniclers. Uh, Quite the opposite. Some of them elaborate even further than the Melrose Chronicle on the range of iniquities he is said to have committed or to be associated with. One of these writers is John of Worcester, a monk of the early 12th century whose Chronicon Ex Chronicis provides a detailed account of the events sketched out in the Melrose Chronicle, or rather than saying detailed account, uh, which implies additional factual matter, perhaps we should say a more richly described account, uh, the details of which may be more literary than documentary in nature. Here is part of John of Worcester's version of Edmund Ironside's final campaign against Canute in 1016, as translated by Joseph Stevenson. For anyone wanting to look up this translation, I should note that Stevenson erroneously identified the author as Florence of Worcester in the text included in Volume 2, Part 1 of his Church Historians of England, published in 1853. After midsummer, having again assembled a larger army than before, he, Edmund Ironside, boldly resolved to attack Canute and fell in with him at a place called Shearstan in Huichia. 
There he arranged the positions and division of his forces, placed all the best men in the foremost ranks, supporting them and the remainder of the army, and, addressing each by name, exhorted and entreated them to remember that they were about to fight for their country, their children, their wives, and their homes, and, by an excellent address, stirred up the courage of his troops. Then he ordered the trumpets to sound and the army to advance by degrees. The enemy's army did the like. When they came to a spot where they could join battle, the hostile standards met with a tremendous uproar. They fought with sword and spear and with the greatest obstinacy. Meanwhile, King Edmund Ironside exerted himself to the utmost in the foremost ranks, provided for every emergency, fought hard in person, often struck down an enemy, and fulfilled at one and the same time the duties of a brave soldier and an able general. But inasmuch as that most traitorous alderman, Edric Strayona, and Almar the Beloved, and Algar the son of Mew, who ought to have assisted him, had, with the men of Southamptonshire and Wiltshire, and a countless host joined the Danes, his army was overworked. However, on the first day of the battle, which was Monday, the contest was so severe and bloody that at sunset both armies were unable to continue the fight for very weariness, and separated, as it were, with one accord. But on the next day, the king would have exterminated the Danes had it not been for the trick of that faithless alderman Edric Strayona. For as the battle was raging, and he perceived that the English were gaining advantage, he cut off the head of a man named Osmere, whose face and hair were very like King Edmund's, and holding it up, cried out that it was useless for the English to fight, saying, O ye men of Dorsetshire, Devonshire, and Wiltshire, flee quickly, ye have lost your leader. Lo, here I hold the head of your lord and King Edmund, flee with all speed. When the English heard these words, they were terror-struck, more by the atrocity of the thing than by the credit which they gave to their informer. Some waverers were nearly induced thereby to flee, but as soon as it was shown that the king was alive, they took courage, pressed the Danes harder than ever, slew many of them, and kept fighting with all their might until dusk, when the armies separated just as they did the previous day. But when the night was far advanced, Canute ordered his men to leave the camp silently, and setting out for London, regained his ships, and shortly afterwards he renewed the siege of London. When the morning came, and King Edmund Ironside discovered that the Danes had fled, he returned to West Saxony for the purpose of raising a larger army. His brother-in-law, the traitorous alderman Edric, seeing how energetic he was, betook himself to him as his lawful lord, and having renewed his peace with him, swore that he would continue faithful to him. So the king, with the army which he had assembled for the third time, delivered the Londoners from their state of siege and drove back the Danes to their ships. Two days afterwards, he crossed the Thames at a place called Brentford, fought a third battle against the Danes and gained the victory, putting them to flight. Many of the English were drowned on that occasion while crossing the river in a careless manner. When Edmund dies, one might expect Edric to settle down, since there are no longer two sides for him to play against each other. However, according to John of Worcester, Edric instead becomes the worm tongue of Canute's court, teasing out and taking advantage of the freshly enthroned king's paranoid anxieties. But while kings may be willing to make use of an advantageous traitor in times of war, the stain of having betrayed one's lord is not easily washed away. The Melrose Chronicle already told us Edric's fate, he is put to death. 
but John adds a little more to that to make the villain's fate even more fitting. After these things, about the feast day of St. Andrew the Apostle, in the 15th indiction, King Edmund Ironside died at London, and was buried at Glastonbury by the side of his grandfather, King Edgar the Pacific. After his death, King Canute commanded all the bishops and aldermen and the chief men and magnates of England to assemble at London. When they came into his presence, he, as though in ignorance, cunningly asked those who were witnesses when he and Edmund made a treaty of friendship and divided the kingdom, what conversation passed between him and Edmund with regard to the sons and brothers of the latter, and whether it was agreed that if Edmund died in his lifetime, his brothers and sons were to succeed to the West Saxon kingdom after their father's death. They immediately answered that they knew for certain that King Edmund had not reserved any portion of his dominions for his brothers, neither during his lifetime nor after his death. And they added that they knew that King Edmund wished Canute to be protector and guardian of his sons until they were of a fit age to reign. But, as God knows, they bore false witness and lied deceitfully, thinking that he would show them favor and give them large presents in consideration of their lies. But some of these false witnesses were shortly afterwards slain by the said king. Then King Canute, after putting the aforesaid questions, tried to get the aforesaid magnates to swear fealty to him. So they swore that they would choose him for their king, and humbly obey him, and raise taxes for the payment of his army. And receiving the king's bare hand by way of pledge, and the oaths of the Danish chiefs, they passed by entirely the brothers and sons of King Edmund, and denied their right to become kings. Edwy, a renowned and most estimable brother of King Edmund, was one of the Ethelings, and him they most unwarrantly exiled. When King Canute heard of the flatteries of these men and the insult which they had offered to Edwy, he was glad, and entering into his chamber, summoned the traitorous alderman Edric and asked him if he could so entrap Edwy as to put his life in danger. He answered and said that he knew a certain man named Athelward, who could betray him to death easier than he himself could, and that the king could speak with him and offer him a good reward. Having ascertained the man's name, the king summoned him and said cunningly, Thus and thus has Edric the Alderman spoken to me, saying that you can manage to procure the death of Edwy the Etheling. Follow now our counsels, and you shall enjoy all the honors and dignities of your fathers, and ask his head of me, and I will hold you dearer than mine own brother. So he said that he would seek him out and slay him if possible. But his promise was only by way of pretense, for he did not wish to slay him, being descended from one of the noblest families in England. Anno Domini 1017. Benedict was Pope, being the 140th. In this year, King Canute began to reign over all England, and divided it into four parts, reserving West Saxony for himself, and committing East Anglia to Earl Turkel, Mercia to Edric the Alderman, and Northumbria to Earl Irk. The native nobles and people on the one side, and he on the other, entered into a treaty swore to remain firm friends, and laid aside and extinguished their old animosities. Subsequently, King Canute, acting on the advice of the traitorous alderman Edric, outlawed Edwy the Etheling, brother of King Edmund, and Edwy, who is called King of the Churls. The last-named Edwy was afterwards reconciled to the king, but Edwy the Etheling fell a victim to the treachery of those whom he had up to that time thought to be his best friends, and was, in the same year, at the instance and command of King Canute, unjustly slain. Moreover, Edric advised him to slay the little Ethelings, Edward and Edmund, the sons of King Edmund. 
but thinking that his reputation would suffer if they were made away with in England, he sent them to the King of the Swedes to be put to death, who, although he was in league with him, would not comply with his request, but sent them to Solomon, King of the Hungarians, in order that they might be educated and their lives preserved. One of them, namely Edmund, in course of time died there, but Edward married Agatha, a daughter of the brother of the Emperor, Henry, by whom he had Margaret, Queen of the Scots, Christina, a nun, and Edgar the Etheling. In the month of July, King Canute married Alfgiva, the widow of King Ethelred, and on the Feast of Our Lord's Nativity, being at London, he ordered the traitorous alderman Edric to be slain in the palace, fearing that he himself would at length suffer from his perfidy in the same manner as Athelred and Edmund, Edric's former lords, had frequently suffered, and commanded his body to be thrown down from the walls and left unburied. So, I've been highlighting John of Worcester's richer narrative detail, but you may have noticed one quite memorable detail from the Melrose Chronicle that John completely omits, and this is the manner of Edmund's death. Now, different histories give quite different accounts of how Edmund died. John just says, he died, with no further explanation. The most infamous and most lurid tale is the one the Melrose Chronicle gives a version of in which Edmund is killed while using the privy, a particularly ignoble end, all the more upsetting because it is unjustly ignoble. It's a bad end for Edmund, but it reflects even worse on the assassin who devised it. The Melrose Chronicle does not identify this assassin, but another chronicle is more than willing to add this crime to Edric's rap sheet and makes the murder itself even more diabolical. The Melrose Chronicler simply puts a human assassin beneath the privy. Jeffrey Gamer gives us a more elaborate scheme involving a mechanical killing trap. Here's his account of Edmund's death and the final fate of Edric, as given in his verse chronicle, The History of the English People, composed in the 1130s, uh, roughly the same time that John of Worcester was working on his chronicle. This translation is also by Joseph Stevenson and renders Gamer's Anglo-Norman French poetry into English prose. The two kings came to their people. On the morrow the arrangement was made. For the land was divided at the direction of the nobility. As the water of the Thames flows, they thought it right to make a division from the place at which it rises to the Fossway. From thence it flows back and goes straight to the road which the king Belinus caused to be made and which is called Watling Street. To the right of this place, quite to the west, it was divided. When the barons had done this, neither of the two kings retracted from it. They made equal lots and shares, that there never might be contentions. Edmund had his part in the south, and there was his uncle, St. Edward. On the other side of the Thames, Canute administered strict justice. He had London, the seat of his government was there. York also was in his kingdom. Edmund had Canterbury, and therewith Winchester, Salisbury, Gloucester, Dorchester, Cirencester, and Exeter. What shall I say of these two kingdoms? Each one was richly invested. Now they reigned more unitedly than would brothers or relations, and, as I believe, these two loved each other more than brothers. A traitor was envious at this, and thereupon this wicked man committed a great crime. He invited Edmund and went to solicit that he would come stay with him. This was the man. He so earnestly entreated King Edmund that he paid him a visit. 
He received abundant entertainment, but it was maliciously prepared. He who gave it ruined him, the king, entirely, for, like a wicked man, he murdered the king. Edric had caused a machine to be made, the bow of which he caused to shoot forth. If anything touched the string, then he should speedily hear bad news. If even a basin were opposed to it, a man would be struck by the arrow. Where that bow was placed, they formed a new chamber. It was called a privy chamber. People went into it for this business. The king was brought there at night, as Edric had commanded. So soon as he sat upon the seat, the arrow pierced his body upwards until it reached his lungs. The feather of it was hidden in his body, nor did any blood issue forth. The king uttered a cry of death. The soul fled. He was no more. Nothing could be done to recover him. His people carried him from thence and took him to a minster. There they read and chanted much and said matins and services that God, if it pleased him, should inflict punishment upon this wicked felon, this traitor who had thus murdered his lord. The king was decently buried and interred and provided for. But the queen did not know of it. She had two beautiful boys by him, and before she knew about this or any man could tell her, the two children were taken from her and carried direct to Canute. The traitor Edric did this, by which he thought to increase his honors. This wicked villain went to London. King Canute was there and many barons. He kneeled before the king and in his ear informed him how he had acted with Edmund and how he had brought the children. When the king had thoroughly heard all this, he became very reproachful and angry. He caused all his barons to be brought and he recounted to them the treason. When he had thus substantiated it in their hearing, he had him seized and carried upon an ancient tower so situated that when the tide rose, the Thames washed it. The king himself went afterwards, and he sent for all the citizens. He caused an axe to be brought. I know not if there be another such under heaven. He caused a withe to be twisted round the forelock of the traitor. When it was firmly secured in the forelock, King Canute went instantly to him. He gave him a slight blow with which he severed his head from the trunk. He caused the body to be let down below. The tide flowed in. Then he caused the head of the traitor to be thrown in and they went together to the main sea. May the living devil have them. Thus ended Edric Estrana. And the king said to his confidants, so that many heard it, This man killed my brother. In him I have avenged all my friends. He was indeed my brother in reality, nor will I ever put another in his place. Since this has happened so, may Beelzebub have the body of Edric. So, there we have the most brutally detailed of our three accounts, both of Edmund's death and Edric's. Murder in the Privy makes for a gruesome story, but modern historians tend to view it as just that, a story. It seems more likely that Edmund died either of an illness or perhaps the effects of battlefield wounds. If I let my imagination run wild, I can picture Edmund healing from some abdominal injury going to use the privy and experiencing some kind of hemorrhage while straining and then dying not long afterwards, which is a circumstance that could easily lead to third-hand rumors of some kind of hidden and shameful killing blow to the vulnerable king. But the situation would have been clear enough to the actual witnesses to the king's death that no cries of murder were issued at the time, and many other chroniclers just report that the king died without any hint of foul play. 
That said, it is also certainly true that Canute benefited enormously from this fortuitously early death of Edmund, and some form of assassination has not been entirely ruled out. Both John of Worcester and Gamer show us a side of Canute that's a bit more warlord-like than we usually see. Indeed, it's rather easy to forget that Swain and Canute's reigns do constitute another conquest of England, the Danish Conquest. In contrast to the Norman Conquest of three decades later, Canute's 20-year reign is much less culturally disruptive, and he had good relations with the church, so that medieval clerical historians tended to look more favorably on him. And as such, it's been easy to view Canute's reign as less traumatic to the English state. But Catherine Mack argues that in contrast to the customary portrait of Canute as a conqueror who rather easily integrated into the English kingdom, he did oversee a significant transformation of the political landscape of England. The Viking invasion that preceded his acquisition of the throne had devastated quite a lot of the English landholdings, and within three years of his taking the throne, there is only one English alderman still in their seat from before Canute received the kingdom. As I mentioned before, this is the period when alderman as a title is replaced by earl. Looking a step down the social ladder, the English thanes suffered similar losses, uh, mostly falling in battle, though the historical records are much spottier in this case. Over the nearly 20 years of his reign, both the old Scandinavian earls and the old-blooded English aristocratic houses disappear from the ranks of power and are replaced by new upstart families, including that of Earl Godwin, who will be so pivotal to the politics leading into the Norman Conquest. But again, it's easy to overlook how much this is an overturning and replacement of the old Anglo-Saxon aristocracy, because unlike William the Conqueror giving titles to his Norman entourage, Canute is elevating other English folk into these empty seats. In the abstract, the English state still looks much the same before and after the Danish conquest, but the actual actors on the stage have been quite dramatically shuffled. And glancing away from Britain and back to the continent, we have not yet addressed one of the other items from our episode title, the devil-worshipping Pope Sylvester II. Well, guess what? I'm still not going to address it now, because consider that little line item from the Chronicle as a teaser, as a next time on Medieval Death Trip, because that is our next episode, a closer look at the career and legends surrounding Gilbert Doriac, the future Pope Sylvester II. So stay tuned to this feed for some Faustian bargains to come. And now, let's get to our mystery word. That word is Banarauth. This is an Old Norse word comprised of two elements, bana and rauth. Both of these have direct Old English cognates, bana and rad. Bana has a modern descendant, bane. But whereas bane now means a general negative or antagonistic force, in Old English it had the narrower sense of a killer. Uh, that's also where the botanical sense for a poisonous plant comes from. Henbane was said to kill hens who ate it, uh, likewise for dogbane and wolfsbane. Drad is an Old English word we've talked about before, and even features in our text for today. It's the second element in the name, Athelrad. It means counsel or advice. Athelrad means noble counsel, and his nickname, Unrad, means without counsel, or unadvised, or borrowing the modern descendant of Rad, Athelrad the Unready. Anyway, we put Banna and Rad, or Rauth, together, and what you get is something like 
kill counseling, or more plainly, murder planning. And that's what it means. It's a noun for planning or devising the death of someone. And who would do such a thing? Why, a Rauthbani in Old Norse, or a Radbana in Old English. Same stems, reverse order. Kind of like how horse race and racehorse work as two distinctly different things orbiting the same central concept. One way, you get the activity. The other way around, you get the actor. Interestingly, we have an Old English source that specifies that a Radbana does not commit the murder themselves. They are merely the divisor of the murder plot. The deed is carried out by the Dadbana, literally the killer in deed or in action. So depending on what source you read, the evil Edric is either just a Radbana or he goes full Dadbana. Either way, it's a story full of Banarauth. Turning from villains to the valiant, I would like to thank some of our champions out there who have supported us on Patreon. Thank you, Patty, and with a little additional thanks to Antonios again. You too can be a loyal friend to the show by becoming a patron through Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, which will get you access to bonus audio content. You can find that at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at mdtpodcast, on Instagram at medievaldeathtrip, or on the web at medievaldeathtrip.com. And my email is patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com if you have any questions or comments. So, until next time, watch your back and your backside. Those pesky assassins get into the most unlikely spaces. And thanks for listening.